The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he said to his disciples, Who do the people say that the Son of Man is? And his disciples answered him, Some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But Jesus said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. How does Simon become Peter? How does Simon, the ordinary, limited, sinful fisherman, become Peter, the rock upon which the church would be founded, through whom Jesus would extend his kingdom radically into this world? How does Simon become Peter? This is one of the greatest transformation stories in history, Simon becoming Peter. And it's a story that we're going to spend the rest of this month looking at in Matthew 16. How does Simon become Peter? We, we love these transformation stories, and I believe in transformation stories. I believe that people's lives can be radically transformed. I believe that more than ever before since returning from three weeks on vacation in Canada. Because we saw signs of incredible transformation while we were in Canada. In every conversation, I was dropping y'alls. I was losing my mind driving through Quebec, where the maximum speed on the highway is 62 miles per hour. We were laughing as we sat on a beach when a heat advisory warning came out when it became 86 degrees outside. <laughs> and when we landed at the DFW airport, my eldest daughter turned to me and said, Daddy, Texas is better than Canada. We have been transformed. We have been transformed. Transformations happen. They really do. But this transformation story of Simon becoming Peter is not just his story. We would radically miss the point of Matthew 16 if we think, oh, well, isn't that great for, for Simon? That God could, in a special way, work in his life and not realize that Simon's transformation story is meant to be yours and mine. We are all very Simon-like. We are all limited. We are all very ordinary. We are all very broken and sinful. And yet God, through Jesus Christ, intends to turn Simons into Peters who will make a difference in this world. We love transformation stories because we have this innate sense within us, don't we, that there is always something more that we could be called to. There's a psychologist in New York City who was a well-known psychologist and, and, and treated everyone from the rich to the poor, from the single, the married, the divorced, young and old. 
And when asked after many, many years of practice, he said, okay, looking at this urban center of New York City, kind of a little snapshot of America, is there a common thread you see? Without breaking any confidences, is there a common thread you see in all your clients? And he said, yes, this is the common thread. Every client who walks through my door is essentially saying this, that I feel like I came off the assembly line with a piece missing. I feel like I came off the assembly line with a piece missing. We know innately within us as human beings that there is something broken, and yet there's something we're being called to. And yet we keep hitting our heads against that ceiling. Oh, Lord, would I be transformed? We look at Peter's story, and we ask, how does Simon become Peter? And it begins here, just in these short verses, where Peter confesses who Jesus of Nazareth really is. You see, in verse 13 and 14, Jesus comes to the region of Caesarea Philippi, and he asks his disciples, who do the people say that the Son of Man is? And they say, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah or Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And and these are all pretty positive answers, aren't they? I mean, to be called one of the prophets in Israel, that's that's a pretty good answer. It's a positive review. And yet it falls fatally short of who Jesus really is. You see, the people around Jesus are describing him as a prophet, but they're missing the point that this is no prophet. You see, the prophets in the Old Testament were really good at pointing away from themselves. They would point away from themselves and say, look to God. But Jesus consistently pointed to himself and would say, I am. The prophets would consistently say things like, thus says the Lord. But Jesus would say, you have heard it said, but I say to you. The prophets would say, the day of salvation is coming. And Jesus would stand there and say, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. You see, Jesus was not a prophet at all. And Peter recognizes that. You see, after they describe who the crowds are saying Jesus is, Jesus says in verse 15, he he sort of zooms in. And Matthew does it on purpose. He actually changes the tense of the verb. He uses what's called a dramatic verb tense, which basically moves from, you know, when someone's telling a story, saying, you know, we did this and we did this, and then all of a sudden dramatically says, and then Jesus says, slows it down, bring the lens in, zoom in. Jesus says, who do you say that I am? I mean, Matthew points to verse 15 as the center point. Who do you say that I am? And Simon answers. He gives an answer that changes everything. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And and within that short confession, Simon says something that causes the tectonic plates beneath his feet to shift. His whole worldview is changed in that moment. And anyone who can confess these words, their lives will never be the same. Because this is the point. If what Simon is confessing about Jesus is true, then nothing can stay the same, including Simon. 
If what Simon confesses about Jesus is true, then nothing can stay the same, including Simon. Simon can't stay the same because of these words. Because in these short words, what Simon is confessing is that Jesus is both royal and he's real. He's royal and he's really, really real. What does he mean by he's royal? Well, first... Simon's confession that Jesus is royal is when he says in verse 16, you are the Christ. Now, the Christ is not Jesus' last name, right? Jesus Christ, that's not his last name. It's his title. It is the Greek version of the Hebrew word Messiah. Now, Messiah means king in one sense. Literally, it means anointed one, Mashiach in Hebrew. Now, this Messiah, this Christ, this anointed one would indicate a king, a royal monarch. But you see, in the life of Israel, it meant even more by the time that Peter says these words. When he says, you're the Christ, it means so much more. Because for Israel, having gone through exile, having been occupied by foreign powers, having been kicked in the teeth into the dirt again and again and again, a hope arose within Israel that a Messiah would come, an anointed one would come, and he would save them. He would rescue them. He would bring them into a new golden age. We read these words in Isaiah 61 just a few moments ago. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, Isaiah 61 writes, because the Lord has anointed me. That's Messiah, has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. You know, it's incredible, is when Jesus came into Nazareth with all that understanding of what anointed one means, what Messiah means. When he came into the synagogue in Nazareth, one of his first preaching moments in his hometown, what does he do? Well, Luke 4 tells us that he goes into the synagogue on the Sabbath, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue, (coughs) he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed, Mashiach, me, to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then Luke writes this, and he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all the synagogue were on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. It's like the mic drop moment. I'm it. I'm the anointed one. I'm the one that's come to set you free. This is what Simon is confessing when he says, you are the Christ. But we need to be careful, just to be clear, we have to be careful when we talk about royalty because we often misunderstand royalty. Right? We think of royalty in the terms of all of the other examples of royalty around us, and we can go sideways when we do that. We as Americans are rather obsessed with the British royalty in a wacky way. 
As the great American prophet Jay Leno has said, (laughs) a lot of Americans don't understand the role of the queen. The queen is merely a figurehead. She wields no real political power, or as we call it in this country, the vice president. (laughs) He then goes on to say this. He says, due to the bad economy, the queen of England's salary will be frozen for the next four years. I mean, that's a sign of no real authority, right? Frozen salary the next four years. Leno goes on to say, in fact, to make ends meet, the queen is thinking of having a yard sale, getting rid of a lot of stuff she doesn't use anymore, like Canada. When we think about the royals, we have to be careful when we think of Jesus as royal, as Jesus as king, because we can misunderstand really what kingship means. It's interesting in verse 13 that this whole thing takes place at Caesarea Philippi. And and what's amazing about that is the fact that Caesarea Philippi really was the representation next to Rome. It was the representation, really, the second best example of everything to do with the Roman Empire and its power and its dominance. Listen to the name, Caesarea Philippi. You see, Herod the Great had built there a temple to the Roman emperor. Right? He built a temple for worshiping the Roman Empire in Caesarea Philippi. It had been called Panias. But then his son, Philip, the Tetrarch, Herod the Great's son, Philip, had rebuilt and built up the temple even further, and he decided to dedicate the city to Augustus Caesar by giving it the name Caesarea. But Philip, being the narcissist that he was, decided he'd slip his own name in there as well and called it Caesarea Philippi. This city with Mount Hermon right behind him, as Jesus is standing there, this is the backdrop for this question, who do you say that I am? In the face of all of these kings, in the face of all of this royalty, in the face of all of this power, who am I? And Simon has the audacity to say, you are the Christ. You're the king. You're the Messiah. Do we confess Christ as our king? Really? Do we really hold him to be our king, the one we will follow, the one we will obey, the one we will pledge our swords to and give our allegiance to? How do you translate the concept of Christ and Messiah into 21st century culture? I mean, it's a hard concept, right? I think there's a church in Manila who I think best examples this in the, in the name of the church. It's Manila in the Philippines, and you can see the name on a big placard above the skyline of the city, and the name of the church is Jesus is the answer. That's really what Messiah means. That's what Christ, that's what King means. He's the answer. As we sing every year, O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by, yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. That's what Christ means. 
And Simon gets it. You're the Christ. But it's not just that he's affirming his royalty. He goes on in verse 16 to say, you are the son of the living God, which affirms just how real Jesus is. And what I mean by that is that Jesus for Simon in that moment becomes the most real thing that there is in the world. Really real. What lasts, what matters. Again, the backdrop of Caesarea Philippi being the location of where this conversation is happening, not only was it a symbol of the Roman Empire, but it was a symbol of pagan worship and idolatry. You see, Mount Hermon, which was where Caesarea Philippi was, was a place where the Syrians would worship the god Baal. And so Baal worship had been going on there for generations. But also the Greeks had built their temple to Pan there. We'll talk more about that next week. But in addition then, Herod the Great and Philip had built up this temple to Rome. And then all of the other pagan religions had built up their little shrines. So as you looked up at this mountain behind Jesus, as he's asking them, who do you say that I am? You're seeing this pantheon of idols and temples to pagan gods. And what's interesting, when Peter says, You are the son of the living God. What he's saying, he's using a coded Old Testament concept to say that this is the God who lives. Not the God who is an idol, a dead idol. This is the God who's alive, who's breathing, who's working, who's speaking, who's engaged in his world. That's what the living God is. As Psalm 115 describes the idols that our world is filled with, the idols that we build up and that we worship, Psalm 115, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak. They have eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear. Noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel. Feet but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them will be like them. So do all who trust in them. I mean, the... the, The conviction of scripture is that to worship a dead idol that can't speak and can't see and can't walk is to ultimately become like that idol. We become like those that we worship. Isn't it amazing when you think about that? That Jesus, when he goes around doing all his healing ministry, what kind of healings is he doing? In the face of these idols out there and and, and the effect these idols are having on people, Jesus goes around healing people of their blindness, of their deafness. They're no longer crippled. They can walk. What is he doing but declaring, I am the living God who is putting back together people who have been absorbed by pagan idol worship. I'm setting you free from these false idols. This is what it means when Peter says, you are the son of the living God. As we'll see next week, the resurrection will become for the world the greatest sign and moment to indicate that this truly is the one who lives. Even death in Hades cannot destroy this one. This is what ultimately the resurrection will point to. I was was sitting in a high school world religions class a number of years ago that I was invited to into a, into, a, into a secular public high school, but I was invited in as a guest just to share a little bit about a Christian perspective on religion. 
And somehow, quickly, we got into miracles. And one of the students around the room said, well, that's just not possible. That's just not possible. You know, miracles are not possible. And I looked at this 17-year-old, bright, and I smiled. Because it's always nice to make people feel better before you destroy their worldview. (laughs) And I smiled. And I said, well, what if Jesus did actually rise from the dead? What he did? I said, just, just go with me for a second, logically. What if Jesus actually did rise from the dead? Let's be logical here. If that actually happened, and if the historical evidence of Scripture can give enough backing to say this historical event took place, then wouldn't it logically follow that everything else in our worldview would have to be shifted? If a man actually has come back from the dead and is still living today, does that not mean that our entire view of the world needs to shift? This is what it means when Simon says, you are the son of the living God. Jesus is therefore what is really real in this world, what is really powerful, what is really good, what is really beautiful, what is really going to last. Isn't it amazing, though, how much we give our lives to things that aren't lasting? Isn't it amazing how quickly we give our lives to things that don't really matter, don't really last, aren't really good, aren't really true? And yet we do it again and again. Before we criticize those who worship idols, we need to be aware of the idols that live in our own hearts. As C.S. Lewis famously wrote, he said, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. If true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. You are the son of the living God. You are the Christ. Royal, real. Now, as I close, you you must, at this point, begin to think, well, Peter, Simon, I mean, this guy is something special, right? He, he must be the most brilliant of the disciples. He must be one of the most brilliant people that ever walked the earth to figure this out. I mean, Simon, wow, you are the smartest guy that ever walked the earth. To figure this out, to, to have this ability to answer that question, who do you say that I am? But that's exactly the opposite of what the text tells us, isn't it? Simon was not the best and the brightest. He was not the brilliant one. He did not even come up with this on his own. And here's the gospel. Verse 17. Verse 17, Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. What what that really means is flesh and blood is, is your human mortality, your strength, your own abilities. Your humanness, your own strength did not get you to figure this out, Simon. Your mind didn't figure this out. Your might didn't capture this. Your personal sense of morality didn't earn this. No, this has been revealed to you by my Father in heaven. And that word revealed is the word apocalypto. It's the word we get for revelation. It means to pull back the curtain. 
In other words, Simon, you've been following me around. You've watched me. You've seen my miracles. You've heard what I've said. And, and you've been praying about these things and consider these things. But just recognize that the one that put all the dots together for you was not you. This is a gift, Simon. You're blessed not because you earned this. You're blessed because you never would have figured this out on your own. You're blessed because it's been revealed to you. My Father's given this to you. Isn't this the center point of all of our faith? That everything we have, even our confession of who Jesus is, is a gift given to us from God. God has worked in our hearts and our minds to bring us to the point where we can say, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's revealed. It's a given. It's given to us. This is the gospel. See, God doesn't wait for us to seek him, he comes to us and reveals himself to those who do not even deserve him. I love in Matthew chapter 11, just a few verses before this, Jesus says these words. He says, at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and have revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus is saying to us that at the center of our ability to confess Christ, it is a gift. It has been revealed to us by his Father in heaven. Don't you see what this means? What it means is that if you can confess on your lips that Jesus is Lord, if you can say Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that that's because it's been revealed to you. That is grace that has been poured into your life. Doesn't that make you both humble and thankful and wobbly in the knees? One such as me would be given that gift to know, to have this revelation poured into my heart and my mind of who Jesus is. But you know what it also means? If you do not yet confess Jesus as the Christ, as the Son of the living God, if you're still checking this out and figuring this out, do you know what it means? Is at the end of the day, keep searching, keep studying, keep walking with Jesus. But oh, would you ask the Father? Know that ultimately coming to the place of faith will be a gift from God. And so ask the Father, oh, Father, would you reveal the truth to me? And, and, and do you know what this means? If, if you have loved ones and family and neighbors and coworkers who you desperately want to see come to this confession themselves, then you need to ask. Sure, you need to be a witness. You need to be present. You need to share the story of Jesus. But you need to pray. Father, reveal yourself to this one. God revealed himself to Abraham, to Moses, and he's revealing himself to people this moment. How does Simon become Peter? How does this ordinary, limited, sinful man get transformed into someone who will change the world? 24 years ago, 
I was far from looking for Jesus. And yet, in a span of 90 minutes, I walked into a gathering and I was confronted, not because I was so smart, certainly not because I was so moral, not because I was so strong, but I was confronted with the revelation that Jesus was real, that he was the king. And I walked into that meeting a convicted atheist, and I walked out of that meeting a committed Christian, and I said, I'm the biggest moron on the face of this earth and such a recipient of grace. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God, he to rescue me from danger, interposed his precious blood. Who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.